0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein.
0: Damien Garde is off this week.
1: It's Thursday, September 30th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
0: Everything. There's so much going on this week in our biotech world that Adam and I are going to entertain you, we hope, with an extended Chatty Cathy section.
1: I'm looking forward to that. And on a more serious note, we're going to start with a talk with our stat colleague Usha Lee McFarling about her investigation into the troubling trend of health equity tourism. Her story generated a ton of well-deserved buzz and discussion this week. But before all of that, let's hear from our sponsor. Hi,
0: everyone. My name is Maria. My name is Danielle, and Maria and I are the new hosts of Genentech's award-winning podcast, Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. It's a show for scientists, science geeks, and the people who love them. Aww. So Maria, true story, is from the UK. She's into clinical data, transcription factors, and long runs on the beach. That's right. And Danielle is from Texas. She loves translational medicine, woodworking, and getting up close and personal with cancer cells. And when we're not botching each other's accents, you can usually find us chatting up other scientists about all kinds of cutting edge research. So grab a drink and check us out wherever you get your favorite podcasts or find us at gene.com slash podcast. That's G-E-N-E dot
2: com slash podcast.
1: Fueled by the massive health disparities exposed by the coronavirus pandemic and the racial reckoning that followed the murder of George Floyd, health equity research is now in vogue.
0: Journals are clamoring for it, the media is covering it, and the NIH, after publicly apologizing for giving the field short shrift, recently announced it would unleash nearly $100 million for research on the topic.
1: This would seem to be great news, but a stat investigation published this week shows a gold rush mentality where researchers with little or no background or training in health equity research, often white and well-funded, are rushing in to scoop up grants and publish papers.
0: The investigation was led by stat reporter Ushali McFarling, whose introduction to her story we essentially just read you is this introduction. In her reporting, she documented dozens of cases where white researchers are building on the work of or picking the brains of black and brown researchers without citing them or offering to include them on grants or as co-authors.
1: Usha joined us now to tell us more. Uh, Usha, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, guys. So your story really caught fire this week. Uh, I saw tons of people talking about it on Twitter. Tell us about just sort of this, this moment that we're seeing, and help us define maybe the term health equity research
2: sure well health equity research is something that's been happening for decades and it is work to address and find solutions to the health disparities that you know the coronavirus exposed so clearly that people in communities of color are dying younger dying of you know cancer at higher rates having less access to health care um, and it's it's a really kind of proud and important field. And it's largely been led and um, populated by many researchers of color. It's been a place they've been able to stand out and excel, which is not really true in all of academic
1: medicine. And so in your story, you describe this disturbing trend and and you call it health equity tourism. Explain what's happening and why it's a problem.
2: Yeah. Um, tourism is actually a great term, but it was coined by one of my sources in the story, Elle Lett, a researcher and uh, medical student candidate at Penn. Um, but what we're really seeing is, um, and you know, many researchers just kind of told me a similar story after similar story. They've been working in this field for years or decades, really having trouble getting funded. And NIH has admitted that they did not fund this area. They're having trouble getting their papers published in journals. And now since 2020 and the, um, the pandemic and the racial reckoning we're seeing in this country, this topic has become front and center. So now journals want this work. The NIH wants to fund it. And many of these people that have long worked in the field, I feel like they're being pushed to the back of the line by much more well-resourced researchers, often white, who just have the resources, the um, teams at their universities to help them write grants, the connections with journal editors to get their papers published. Um, and it's, it's very painful. And it's something that people have been talking about amongst themselves, but not bringing out in public. And my report tried to uh, you know, cast a light on what's happening and hopefully people will think about what they're doing in this field and are they helping it or are they possibly hurting it?
0: One of the examples that you talk about in the piece it was really recent from the Journal of the American Medical Association. We just saw this play out and I remember seeing I think their editor-in-chief was fired as a result of all of these missteps. Can you tell us about what happened there?
2: Yeah, that's some of my earlier uh, reporting. Um, JAMA has, like many journals, has a, has a podcast, and it released a really unfortunate one where the host, who is a physician and an editor, questioned whether racism could exist in medicine. And things like, we can't be racist because racism is illegal. Um, they tweeted, you know, no doctor is racist to promote the podcast. And this really just rankled everyone. Uh, people couldn't believe the tone-deaf nature of it. Um, racism so clearly documented within medicine. And so that did lead to JAMA both kind of um, getting rid of that editor involved and the editor-in-chief who oversees, you know, oversees obviously everything at JAMA. And they become something of a lightning rod for this issue because people were so angered. Some people are boycotting JAMA. They say they just have, you know, the editors are largely white and out of touch with these issues. But I think, you know, JAMA may be a lightning rod, but they're really indicative of major journals throughout medicine that have some of these same problems.
1: Anusha, as you point out, JAMA just had the special themed issue on racial and ethnic health disparities. You know, they published five research papers, but not one of them included a a black lead or corresponding author. And I think just one of the lead authors was Hispanic, correct?
2: That's correct. And I think and I tried to, you know, JAMA didn't grant me an interview about this. I really wanted to know, was this something they thought about? Had they even realized? I do think they are working on their problems. They have a, they have an incredible committee, a very diverse committee seeking a new editor-in-chief. Um, the AMA has an incredible health um, diversity officer, Dr. Arletha Maybank, working on things. So I think it's part of what they were trying to do to you know they're saying we're open we want to do we want to cover health disparities and take on this topic and as one of my sources said like they did it in the most ham-fisted way they you know they they did exactly something that's emblematic of what's in my article um the research not only was led by often white um authors oftentimes they were just republishing things that that black and hispanic authors had already written and done years ago but but Jama had rejected so um, the whole episode was, I thought, really, really illuminating.
0: That was one of the moments, one of the first moments of which there were several when I was reading your piece and my just jaw dropped I went like, oh, and it was, you're telling, you mentioned Ellet earlier and her experience of having done that research uh, and having published it. And then when you reveal that she had actually submitted it to them and it had been rejected and then that she so eloquently points out how his paper will be the paper that was published in JAMA will be the one that gets cited. And so she gets silenced even more. Tell us more about just hearing that from her.
2: Yeah, the episode with Alette is so illustrative. And she explained it so eloquently. So I hope people will also go and listen to the video um, that that runs where she can talk about this more in depth. But Yeah, basically, she had done this research and my jaw dropped too during the interview where at the end of it, she's like, you know, I submitted this to JAMA and they didn't want it. Um, You know, they didn't even send it out for review. There was absolutely, I talked to her co-authors too. There's like absolutely no interest. The door was just slammed in their face. So I think it's very painful to, on top of that, see a paper published by a white author that had less data, that didn't even include... uh, didn't include as many races and ethnicities as the original paper did and was three or four years later than their work. Because in science, we often prize the people that are first. But in this case, you know, they
1: did not. So what kind of response have you received uh, since the story was published? The
2: response has been overwhelming, Um, you know. It's hard to cover structural racism because people say it doesn't exist or they try to explain it away or they say, well, it's it's something else or no, you're imagining that. And I think we gathered enough evidence to show that it's like just a consistent and persistent pattern of racism. And I just, you know, so many people responded that. They had felt this. They thought they were the only ones. This had happened to them, but they were afraid to speak out about it. Um, People said they were pounding their desks in rage as they read the story because it was hit so close to home. Um, Some people said they cried. You know, many people. and white researchers also, uh, you know, said they're sharing it with colleagues or saying, look, we, we want to work in health equity research. We want to make a difference. Let's. Re- we need to read this paper. This is really important. We need to think about these issues. I don't want people to take away the message that white researchers should not work in this field. People in health equity, they pride themselves on being inclusive. Some of the best health equity researchers are and have been white. Um, It's just that they want people to come in, be collaborative, do their research, um, work together in teams, work with community members that they're studying, not do academic medicine as usual.
0: I think one of the things the story I felt illustrated so well to me was just how gatekeepery this entire field is. I mean, the idea of getting tenure and getting published and it depends on who the reviewers are. And as you point out from one of the people in the story, um, Jorge Caballero, is that how you pronounce his name? Mm -hmm. He points out, quote, it boils down to who these editors-in-chief know. Those are the people who are peer-reviewing these articles. And often that can mean you just get the same folks with the same perspective. It just feels like it could be so hard for people to break through. And then you illustrate with all this money flowing in And even the grant uh, making process from the NIH has all kinds of barriers for people getting funded. So are you optimistic after seeing the response to your story that things might start improving?
2: Well, yeah, it's really clear that the whole research enterprise is sort of geared and built towards white people. Um, I talked to one Black researcher who, you know, she's filling out paperwork to get a grant. For minority, you know, researchers. And there's a whole section. How will you contribute to DEI efforts? So even the paperwork is for like white people. Cause she's like, I just contribute by existing, you know? So, you know, she's like, that really raised my eyebrows, you know, who, you know, who this agency is. And it's so, you're right. It's very gatekeeper. There's gatekeepers on top of gatekeepers, right? Cause if you can't publish, then you won't get tenure. And, you know, if you, if you don't get grants, you can't publish. Um, It's very circular. And these are the gates, I think, that are the reasons we have, you know, fewer than 4% of um, academic physicians at medical schools are black, right? So these are the number, many people have said, this is stuff that literally drove them out of the field. Just, I'm going to just be, I'm just going to go back to medical practice. I can't deal with academia. So it's really rough, but I, um, you know, I was so grateful for to many people who spoke to me, including um, some journal editors like Alan Weil of Health Affairs, who is like, "Wow, my this whole field is deeply, you know, filled with systemic racism, and we're going to address it." So they're doing all kinds of things, and he really mentioned that he hears from other editors. They say, "Well, I don't, you know, I just can't find reviewers," and he's like. His thing is like the people are out there to review. And many of my sources were like, send us the papers. We'll review them. We want to help. And his, you know, his question really is like, you can, it's easy to say people aren't out there, but are you really looking? So people have to get past their really sh- small networks and reach out. And I think people who want to be involved, the minority scientists need to somehow get their names out in front of people and say that they are willing to do the work because there's a real disconnect out there right
1: now. Well, hopefully the situation uh, will improve. You know, Usha, this was really great work and, and thanks for joining us to talk about it.
2: Thank you both.
1: All right, so let's move on to the part of the podcast that we here affectionately call the Chatty Cathy segment. Uh, Meg, uh, just a few hours before we started recording the podcast, there was a big deal in the biopharma world. Tell us about it.
0: Yeah, so um, Thursday morning, Merck announced it's acquiring Acceleron Pharma for about eleven and a half billion dollars. This is a company that makes a drug for pulmonary arterial hypertension, which seems to be the just drug and the disease of du, du jour for all of these uh, pharma companies and their buyouts of late. I J and J did a big deal for Actelion getting those PAH drugs, and it's a relatively rare disease, but um, Acceleron has uh, the first potentially disease-modifying drug for PAH. And so that's pretty exciting. Uh, it's in phase three. Uh, and we got to talk with Merck CEO Rob Davis this morning on CNBC. First TV interview, he took the job over from Ken Frazier July 1st. So this is a pretty big deal um, that he's, you know, embarking on really close to being right out of the gate.
1: Yeah. You know, Meg, Merck, Merck is really not known for doing like big acquisition type deals. And, you know, this is 11, 11 and a half billion dollars, right? So that's a kind, of, it's kind of out of the norm for Merck.
0: Yeah, it's it definitely feels like a shift. I mean, I mean, it's not a massive mega deal, which Merck has always signaled, at least since sharing Plow, it's not into. Um, I guess maybe it's the biggest since the Cubist deal um, several years ago in antibiotics, uh, which really doesn't seem to be something that Merck is like tremendously focused on anymore. Um, but it was really interesting talking with Rob Davis this morning he, we also asked him about the COVID antiviral drug they're working on, Molnupiravir, which they licensed from Ridgeback Bio. And he said they are optimistic about what they'll see in the phase three, which is expected potentially over the coming weeks. Um, and he said, you know, if it works, obviously, it could really change the way people think about COVID. If you knew there was a drug, you could take a pill that you could get easily early in the course of the infection that could really mitigate its severest potential effects, it would, it would, really just changed the psychology of how we're all thinking about this.
1: Yeah, that study is going to be, uh, that's really, it's just a really important study. And I think people are really looking forward to seeing those results. You know, and getting back to Acceleron for a second, you know, I've covered that company for a really long time. And the deal this morning reminded me that um, the first time I saw data on that PAH drug, um, it's called Sotatercept. And they actually have another drug called Patercept, which is actually approved today, was back in December 2014. I was at the American Society of Hematology meeting. And those two drugs were kind of in the early phase two studies They had just a handful of patients. And the drug back then looked really promising. Both of them look promising. Um, you know, they were partnered with Bristol-Myers or Celgene at the time. Um, so to see like seven years later, to see like those two kind of, you know, promising mid-stage drugs now get bought for $11 billion, was is kind of cool.
0: And it shows you how long the timelines are in biotech outside of the world of COVID vaccines when you're talking about seven years ago, phase two data. And now we're we still are waiting uh, for this drug to get through phase three.
1: No, absolutely. So let's switch over to COVID. Um, Meg, let me ask you a question. Do you know where I could pick up a 12-foot pyramid of bones?
0: I think Greg Gonzalez might have some lying around.
1: <laughs> I think he has two pyramids of bones.
0: <laughs> so th- I just am starting to see this this morning. Dan Diamond from The Washington Post wrote an article about this, but there were apparently two protests in front of the homes of Moderna CEO Stefan Bunzel in the Boston area and Ron Klain, uh, President Biden's chief of staff in D.C., um, protesting lack of vaccine equity uh, and the role of the U.S. and the U.S pharmaceutical industry uh, is playing in it.
1: Yeah, I got to say, I, you know, I love Greg Gonzalez. I, I admire his passion, um, his you know, f- for health equity and and for social justice. You know, <laughs> the the twelve foot pyramid of bones that they planted outside of uh, you know the, the homes of Stefan Munsel and Ron Klein probably a little bit performance art, um, but it obviously it's getting us talking. It's got. Got, hit, got Dan Diamond at the Washington Post to write a story about it. So, um, you know, more power to him.
0: Yeah, and uh, on a sort of different note with COVID, we did get some... Um, hints of more news coming for the booster situation this week. At a White House COVID briefing, Dr. Fauci mentioned that the much-anticipated results of the NIH's mix-and-match booster study, where essentially they're looking at using each of the three U.S.-authorized vaccines as a booster for each of the three U.S.-authorized vaccine primary series, so a Moderna on top of a J&J, you know, a JJ and j on top of two Pfizer's, all of those different combinations, and he said that the results are in for Moderna as the boost, and that within a week, we could get the J&J results, and by the first two weeks of October, the Pfizer results. But when I say we can get, I don't actually mean we, because he said, well, they're not public yet. I contacted the NIAID and asked, how can we see these? And they just said they're not available yet to the public, but they've shared them with the CDC's advisory committee and with the FDA. So then I asked the CDC, are you guys going to publish these? And they said, well, they're not our data, so we wouldn't publish them. So I'm out to the FDA waiting to know when are we going to see these results, because I think it'll inform whether we can get different boosters. And of course, that's a huge commercial question for all of these companies competing to be the booster shot of choice. Uh, But also for a lot of folks who got Moderna and J&J, they don't have guidance on what they can do for a booster shot yet. And there's a lot of evidence that especially people who got J&J have less protection. Uh, So a lot of people are sort of like, hello, we need this guidance. So these results might inform that.
1: Yeah, we'll be talking about this a lot more. Uh, you know, I I have spoken to people personally, friends, and who have who got vaccinated with Moderna, and like they keep asking me, like, when am when am I going to get my booster? When when can I get my booster? And I, you know, I sort of shrug and I tell them to just wait.
0: Yeah. Well, switching gears, gene therapy. There's a lot of discussion of just how much gene therapy there is in the world right now this week. Um, and the perception is perhaps there is too much. Adam, fill us in.
1: Yeah, you know, um, Josh Shimmer put out a note. Uh, Josh Shimmer's is an analyst over at ISI uh, Evercore, and he had a short note this week that kind of just noted um how many different gene therapy programs there were out there in the world for like a certain number of diseases? And what what was remarkable about it to me was striking to me um, was just some of these rare diseases. you know there are sometimes upwards of a dozen different companies vying for uh, vying for gene therapies you know, in these diseases. and you think about it, you know obviously the promise of gene therapy is a sort of one-time treatment. Um, and that's going to make it very difficult for all of these companies when they sort of ultimately sort of come together. Like, how are you going to compare them? You know, if there's multiple approvals, like, who, which patients will take what? And it makes me feel like there is sort of this reckoning in gene therapy that's coming. I, I know we're sort of in the early, still in the early stages of gene therapy development. Um, but ultimately, a lot of these companies are just not going to survive. There's just no way that, from a business standpoint, I think, from a commercial side, that you're going to be able to have, you know, five, ten, you know, different gene therapies for the same disease.
0: Well, then there was news this week for Amicus and gene therapy. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, this was kind of interesting, and it sort of fits into this theme. Um, you know, Amicus is a company that's well known for developing drugs for orphan diseases. And, you know, they have one drug approved. They've got others in the pipeline. But, you know, a few years ago, they sort of pivoted to gene therapy and they, and they bought a sort of family of experimental gene therapies at the time. And I remember speaking to the company, um, John Crawley, who's the CEO, about this kind of this strategic shift that they were making into gene therapy. It was important to them. Well, you know, fast forward to sort of maybe the present day, the company basically gets no credit. Um, from an investor side, from their stock price, they get no credit for having these gene therapies in their pipeline. They spend a lot of money to develop them. Um, And I think maybe what they're seeing is like they're seeing it like is maybe it's better to spin those out into a separate company, which is what they did. So they're basically taking those gene therapies that were in their pipeline, in Amicus's pipeline, and they're going to sort of place them inside of a SPAC. Um, We, you know, again, sort of on trend for this year, all the SPAC stuff. And so they're going to spin these out into a separate publicly traded company. And, you know, Amicus's stock price went up on this news. And I think mostly because investors in Amicus are probably more interested in the company's Orphan disease drugs and sort of the revenue that can be generated from them and are happy that there's not going to be all this spending on gene therapy.
0: And lastly, in this space, although this is CRISPR uh, gene editing, there was news from Editas and it made you really mad. Not the news itself, (laughs) but the way the company handled the news. Maybe explain what the news was and, and also why you were so mad.
1: Yeah, you know, so Editas uh, is kind of one of the original publicly traded CRISPR companies and they had their first data in this kind of rare form of blindness and the data were kind of mediocre. I mean, you know, it was they they sort of showed some positive result in a single patient, but the other patients really didn't respond to it. So there's some questions about the potency of their of their uh, CRISPR based therapy and whether they can go to a higher dose and whether the higher dose is going to be more effective. So a lot of questions. The thing, that, the thing that sort of got me angry, and this is a little bit inside media baseball, Meg, you know, which is kind of obviously the world that you and I operated in on a day to day basis. But, you know, we were brought under embargo, right? Uh, I, like other reporters at other media outlets, were brought under an embargo to sort of look at these data and, and then write our stories. And then we obviously under embargo, we all agree on a, on a certain time when the data are being announced publicly that we can put our stories out. And the company, you know, they essentially, they, I mean, look, they basically misled uh, reporters and and kind of told us that you know the information from you know the data from the study were not available and they didn't give it to us in time they they, they sort of delayed everything and then they actually altered some of the slides that they gave to reporters that that omitted some sort of concerning safety information hmm. and so you know it was just handled really really poorly and I think it sort of it really damages the credibility of Editas when. A company like that does it does this to reporters, and it wasn't just me. It was reporters at Biopharma Dive, it was reporters at Endpoints. So anyway, that's what happened, and I I ranted about it on Twitter uh, this week and uh, and hopefully we'll just sort of move on from there.
0: So moving on from there um, of course we have to talk about Alzheimer's disease because well, this of course is we have loud. to <laughs> um,
1: <laughs>
0: what would a podcast week? be
1: without Alzheimer's?
0: True um, we had Alex Denner on um, CNBC's Delivering Alpha conference um, and of course he's on the board of Biogen I asked him about the Adjuhelm situation and he was he was pretty guarded in what he wanted to say. Um, he's a, you know, he's a director of the company. He's also an investor in the company. Um, but given how much scrutiny is on the company right now, I think he was just being really careful. So he he didn't say much except to say they were very excited about the drug. And then it was kind of interesting. I I brought in another panelist, Chris Barden from NPM Capital, to kind of ask her thoughts on the FDA and all the pressure it's been under, et cetera, and the criticism it's faced for both that decision and sort of the back and forth over boosters. And Alex broke back in after Chris was done talking, and said, uh, basically gave his support to the FDA and and said, you know, it does a really good job and it's really rigorous. Hmm. And it's I wonder why he
1: thinks that underappreciated. (laughs) I know, and
0: I kind of felt like it didn't need to be said that um, obviously he would appreciate the FDA's. Decision on Adju Helm.
1: <laughs> you know, you know, the thing I the thing I find interesting about Alex Denner is, you know, he he joined remember years back, he joined mm-hmm. the Biogen board as kind of this activist investor, right? He was Right, no, he, he came in brought, with Carl
0: Icon, right? Right.
1: He was with Carl Icon, he was brought onto the board to shake things up, you know, kind of an outside agitator. You know, it's been years and so like he's very much now an insider, right? He mm-hmm. is like a you know, he it's it's hard to sort of see him as kind of an activist investor at least on the biogen board because he's been on that board so long and obviously the company has sort of faced criticism about the way it's it's operated and it's tr- sort of its strategic vision and whether it's like too conservative in terms of business development and acquisitions and you know alex is on that board helping to make those decisions and so you know as the company looks forward and as we sort of anticipate Possibly more activism in Biogen or restructuring, as you know, as we've reported, there's a potential for for some cost cutting and layoffs. Um, it'll be really interesting to see sort of the role that Alex Denner plays moving right. forward.
0: Right? Is the activist call going to come from inside the house?
1: <laughs> Ooh, very nice October Halloween illusion there.
0: There's been not enough <laughs> talk about pumpkins yet on this podcast.
1: Well, on um, that note, yeah, Meg. I don't know if you noticed, but, you know, we had Scott Gottlieb on the podcast last week. I did uh, notice book... that
0: we had him on the podcast last week.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> his book debuted at number five on the New York Times bestseller list. But who is at number four?
0: Elmira? Is that what? Elvira? <laughs> Hang on.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Elvira's memoir. I guess Elvira, the the, the person who has sort of. Played the Elvira character for all these years, wrote a memoir, and her book debuted on the New York Times bestseller list at number four. So ahead of Scott Gottlieb. I don't know what that says, but.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it is Uh, (laughs) Halloween-y. Number one on this list, Peril by Bob Woodward, Robert Costa, Vanderbilt, number two, Anderson Cooper, and Catherine Howe. Um, Those are the just debuted this week. But that's pretty good for Scott. And I'm pretty sure it's because he was on this podcast last week.
1: Oh, absolutely. And we might have to get Elvira for next week's show. Definitely. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud.
0: Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Embanado and Alyssa Ambrose.
1: Our executive producer is Rick Burke, and our theme music is by Brian Joel.
0: And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you bought Elvira's book or Scott Gottlieb's. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
1: And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. With Damien.
0: Maybe. Ha <laughs> <laughs>